You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Get your Bibles and open up to Jude. If you're new with us, uh, we were in the book of Jude last week. Jude is uh, right at the end of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. Just a small little sliver of a book, but powerful, pregnant with meaning, and just incredibly profound. And we've titled the series, Jude, Contending for the Real Faith. Uh, Key word, contending Keyword, real. Keyword, faith. That's a lot of key words, but there's counterfeit faiths, and we need to contend for the real faith, and Jude writes to us about that. Uh, as a overview, I want to, if you weren't with us last week, I want to do a flyover uh, of the uh, chapters, where, excuse me, the verses we're going to be looking at, and then we'll, gui- we'll go in and we're going to dive deep into these uh, verses. Uh, let's pray as we open God's word. Jesus, we are incredibly blessed to gather in your name. And Lord, we sing, you can have all this world. Just give me you, Jesus. Give me you. For Lord, when you are with us, nothing else compares. And we can have all the riches of the world, but without you, we're empty. And on the other hand, we can be going through the valley of the shadow of death. But when we have you, we will fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they comfort us. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Lord, help us to see you. Help us to behold your beauty. Help us to inquire in your presence, Lord, that you might speak to us, that we might know you. We have gathered for that purpose. Lord, the communion table is set. May our hearts receive your abounding love for us. And as we open your word, Lord, speak to us. For your servant hears, we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. Amen. Chapter one, verse one, uh, a review of what we covered last week. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Here we see, we looked at this last week. Jude, he calls himself a bondslave. A bond slave was a slave by choice. No one's requiring me to be a slave. I am a cho- I'm a slave willingly because my master Jesus, he's amazing. And he calls himself a brother of Jesus, excuse me, a brother of James. He's actually a brother of Jesus. Uh, James and Jude were both brothers of Jesus. But Jude doesn't uh, pull the trump card, if you will. We see the humility of him. He says, I'm a brother of James. James, of course, a leader in the church in Jerusalem and uh, a pillar in the church. And both James and Jude, Jesus's biological brothers, uh, the Old Testament, excuse me, (laughs) the uh, early church fathers called them the uterine brothers of Jesus. They had a different dad, right? But they had the same mom. And uh, Jesus, of course, virgin born. Uh, But these were his biological brothers, And they did not believe in that Jesus was the Messiah. They weren't following Jesus because they grew up with him every day of their life. But when they saw his death and his resurrection, they realized, oh my gosh, we had God living in our house. He walked among us and uh, it 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 changed their lives. Uh, They became leaders in the church. And so Jude writes this letter to those who are called who are sanctified by God the Father and who are preserved in Jesus Christ. We looked at these three verbs last week, called. Uh, We are selfish. We are sinful. We would never think about giving our lives to God unless God called us. Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. You didn't come calling me. I called you. And uh, I called you because I want to bring you to myself. I want you to know this morning, God made you on purpose. You are not an accident. And God created you because he wants you to know him. And he calls you to himself. 
And you are here this morning, and once again, you are hearing his call, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest to your souls. Take on my yoke and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and your life will be transformed when you understand my great love for you. So we've been called by God. Uh, The next verb we looked at last week is sanctified. We've been set apart by God. Now that you're mine, I don't want you to run amok like those who are not my children. I want you to know my ways. I want to use your life. You are set apart for me. And look what he says, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. That even though we make a mess, that even though we stumble, that even though we uh, sin, he says, oh, I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. I will pick you up. I will put you back on the good path. The Proverbs would say, a righteous man may stumble seven times, but the Lord will uphold him with his hand and brings us. I'm so glad. Aren't you glad to be preserved in Jesus? That you are saved not by your ability, but by his infinite power and uh, sovereign hand. And, And so we are called, we are sanctified, and we are preserved in Jesus. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Uh, The incredible mercy of God, the unmerited love of God upon our life. And uh, look what he says, the peace of God, right? Like just this peace that transforms us, that we can be right with God and we can have his presence with us as we go through life. And notice what he says, mercy, peace, and love be added to you. Is that what he says? Not added. How many of you would be happy with added? Yeah, but not added. What, what word does he use? Multiplied. Uh, hyperbolous, right? Like just a bounding and, and a manifold flow into your life. Multiplied to you. Verse three, beloved, that's you. Loved by God. Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. But I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once, or not, once and for all delivered to the saints. You might want to uh, write the word agonize over that word contend. That's what it is in Greek, agonizo, uh, where we get our English word agonize. I want you to contend for the faith. Uh, I, he says, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to write to you about how amazing it is to have the grace of God and the mercy of God, to have all your sins forgiven by what Jesus did for us. To be totally free by the work of Jesus Christ. To be totally cleansed of all of our failures, all of our sins by the work of Jesus Christ. I wanted to write to you about his mercies that are new every morning. I wanted to write to you about the wisdom and the the discernment that he wants to impart into your life through the word of God so that you would not be deceived by the deceptions that are in the world, but instead you would be inspired with the divine wisdom of God's word that you would be bright light shining in a dark world. I wanted to write to you about all these things, how God wants to build you and edify you. But I found it necessary to write to you to contend, to agonize for the faith. Why? Why? Well, look what he says, verse four. Because certain men have crept in unnoticed. Certain men have slithered in, slithered in unnoticed. To where? To the church. What? Yeah, we looked at this in depth last week. Don't have time to go into all the details of it, but evil has entered into the church. Church, I want you to know, for the first century, Satan tried to persecute the church and the church flourished. So around the third century, Satan shifted his tactics. He quit persecuting the church and he joined the church. And if you're a church historian, you know when this happened, right? It was... Uh, don't have time to go into that, but uh, look what he says. Certain men have crept in unnoticed who were long ago marked out for this condemnation. They are ungodly men and they do two things. I asked you to number these last week. Number one, they turn the grace of God into lewdness, 
instead of realizing that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, that it might inspire us to go, oh my gosh, God loves me that much? That God would become a man, that he would go to a cross, that he would take the punishment of my sin, that he might impart his righteousness to us as a free gift without merit, that he might give us eternal life as a gift, that I might be saved from the judgment and the wrath of God, eternal hell, all by a free gift of what he did for me. He loves me that much. They turn that amazing grace into lewdness. What do you mean? Well, they say, wait, we can sleep together. It doesn't matter. God will forgive us. We can cheat on this deal. We can, we can lie and make an extra 50 grand on this deal. God will forgive us. And they entirely miss the heart of God. They entirely miss the relationship with God. They don't care about this God who loves them. They turn the grace of God into lewdness. I look at the parades and the things that go on and they bring up cards that say, Jesus loves everybody. And they turn the grace of God into lewdness. And the second thing they do, I asked you last week to put a number two right here. They deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love this, this, this uh, way he wrote this. The only Lord God, which means if there's only, that means there's how many? One. The only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that means there's two, unless Jesus and God are one and the same, and they are. They deny the only Lord God. How so? Well, because if you turn the grace of God into lewdness, then Jesus is not the Lord of your life. You are the Lord of your life. You're not doing what Jesus said. You're doing what you want and you're denying his lordship in your life. And so that's where we were last week. And we saw, just as a review, the greatest threat to Christianity is not persecution, it's apostasy. This book of Jude was written at 68, 69, 70 AD, right around that time. The entire New Testament already written by 69 AD. The entire New Testament already written except for John's letters. Already being circulated, already being studied in the churches. And Jude, the church was flourishing as a result. In addition to the church flourishing, Persecution was already flourishing. Nero was crazy, and he's already persecuting the church, blaming the church for everything, right? Uh, throwing uh, Christians in jail and burning them and doing you know, wild things. And Jude writes, he says, hey, listen, the greatest threat, I know there's persecution. Jude had already lost all his brothers that had been, the, the apostles, the disciples had all been martyred except for John and uh, 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 one other, and I'm drawing a blank on which one it was right now. Uh, but all the other apostles have been, had, uh, had already been killed. But he's not writing to us to, to persevere against persecution. He's saying, no, 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 the greatest danger that the church faces is, is what? Apostasy. Say it again, is what? Apostasy. Apostasy, Apostasy means turning away. From the true and living God, not knowing his word, just doing things your own way. Uh, and, and he said that was the greatest danger. And so therefore, he says, you need to contend earnestly for the faith. And we looked, contending for the faith means, uh, means that we fight battles. It means that we uphold truth. Uh, we, how did the nation turn into this nation that we're living in right now? How did prayer get taken out of schools? Can I tell you? The church became apostate. How did homosexual priests become a reality? Can I tell you? Apostasy in the church. We didn't contend earnestly for the faith. How did our school systems be a place that uh, started promoting you can be a boy if you're a girl. You can be a girl if you're a boy. And they're more interested in that than in teaching math and science and, and history. 
Well, here's how. The church did not contend earnestly for the faith. And as a result, our nation is unraveling. Is unraveling. If you haven't noticed, we're in trouble. Government is corrupt. Media is corrupt. All the land is corrupt. And how did it happen? Because the church did not contend earnestly for the faith. Guys, catch up with me. We're on contend earnestly for the faith. We're reviewing last week. Uh, uh, well, that's not it, but we'll go there anyway. Well, <laughs> how do we contend earnestly for the faith? Well, here's how we contend earnestly for the faith. By knowing God. And the only way we can know God is through diligent Bible study. We can't know God by singing a couple songs and going to a little church service that doesn't even teach the Bible. They read two verses for the beginning of the message for 18 seconds, and then they do a little 25-minute inspirational, motivational talk. Well, you're not going to learn who God is that way. And if you don't know who God is, you're not going to be able to contend earnestly for the faith. And if we don't contend earnestly for the faith, well, then apostasy will set into the church. And if apostasy sets into the church, the nation will begin to unravel. Does all this make sense? And that's what we covered last week. And so we see this diligence that we have to have here. And he says, hey, listen, I want you to contend earnestly for the faith because certain men have crept in long ago, unnoticed, and they're turning the grace of God into lewdness and they're denying the only Lord Jesus. And as a result, our nation is unraveling today. Verse five, that's where we left off last week. Here's where we are this week. But I wanna remind you, Though once you already knew this, hey, here's a good reminder. You know this to be true, but it's important. Do not, do not let it slip by. Don't just hear it and move on. I want to remind you this important truth, even though once you already knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Do you understand what's happening here? To warn us of the fatal danger and the tragic end of those caught up in apostasy, Jude gives us two examples of the horrific fate experienced by the apostles of old. And the first example that he gives us of the the apostate's horrific faith is unbelieving Israel. And look what he says, the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. We'll look at this, we'll unpack at this. Look at this next example that he gives. And the angels, verse six, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day of the Lord. Oh my gosh. Israel perished in the wilderness. Angels fell and are under judgment. Verse seven, as the Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and have gone after strange flesh are set forth and as an, as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. You see what Jude is doing here? He tells us, I need you to contend earnestly for the faith. Because the greatest danger the church is facing is not persecution, it's what? Apostasy. And if you are apostate, well, the danger of being that you have a horrific fate, man, you are going to be like unbelieving Israel. And he says that they perished in the wilderness. Uh, I want you to think of this. I want you, you, you guys are good Bible students. What is... What is Jude talking about, about these Jews, that these Israel who perished in the wilderness? What event are we talking about? Where? The Exodus. The Exodus. Back with Moses. 
Do you remember the story? An amazing story. The children of Israel went to live in Egypt during a famine, and over the process of time, they grew and multiplied and flourished, and over the process of time, what happened to them? Egypt said these people are becoming too powerful, and they made them all slaves, put them under hard bondage. And they were beaten, and they were whipped, and they were slaves making brick for Egypt, God's people. And God comes to Moses, a shepherd, and says, Moses, I want you to go to the most powerful nation on earth. I want you to go to the richest, most wealthiest nation on earth. And I want you to stand before the king, the pharaoh of that nation. And I want you to tell him, let my people go. And Moses says, you want me to do what? (laughs) Lord, how am I going to do that? I I don't know anything. Uh, I don't have any weapons. I don't have an army. I don't have anything. And he says, well, what's in your hand? A stick. Well, then we'll do it with that. Because I'm with you. And God sends Moses with a stick to go stand before the most powerful man on the earth, the most wealthy nation on the earth. And he tells him, stands there with a stick in his hand. And he says, "Uh, I'm here. God sent me. And God says, you need to let his people go. What do you think Pharaoh did? Well, the Bible tells us he laughed at him. He laughed at him. And by a series of plagues and incredible powers of God displaying uh, all of his power, he brings Egypt to their knees. And imagine standing before Joe Biden today and say, hey, uh, I want you to quit taxing God's people. Yeah, right. Who are you? Get out of here, right? Well, that's what he did. But God brought Pharaoh to his knees. And God delivered three million Jews out of slavery. They did not have to fight any battles. They didn't have to do anything. As a matter of fact, God told them, stand still. Wait on me, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. All his doing. And he delivers three million Jews out of Israel and uh, brings them on a journey to the promised land. Amazing. But something interesting happened. Of those three million Jews that God delivered out of the slavery of Egypt... Only those who put their faith in God entered the promised land. The rest, what happened to them? They died in the wilderness. And this is curious. They were God's people. They saw God move. But they were apostate. God was more than willing to give them the promised land. But instead of entering the promised land, they died in the wilderness. And I want to ask you a question. I want you to answer out loud. Why? Why did they die in the wilderness? What's your answer? They didn't believe they would overcome the giants, okay? Uh, What else? Lack of faith. What do you mean? Did they not believe in God? No, they believed in God. They had seen God move powerfully. God had manifest himself every day in a pillar of fire and a cloud by night. God was providing manna for them every day. They clearly believed in God. What was the problem? They were fearful. Why were they fearful? Here's what I want you to hold on to. I'm trying to narrow it down really tight. Here's what I want you to hold on to. They perished. Because of their unbelief in the goodness of God. 
in the goodness of God. Moses had sent 12 spies into the promised land. God had delivered 3 million Jews. He has brought them through the wilderness. They are now on the edge of the promised land. And Moses sends 12 spies into the land. The 12 spies go into the land, and what do they find? Oh my goodness. The land is amazing. The 12 spies come back with this this report. By the way, there's a picture of this that Israel still uses today as the symbol of tourism for the nation Israel. It's two men with a pole on their shoulders and a big, huge cluster of grapes hanging over the pole that is so big, one guy can't carry it. It takes two guys over on a pole. And they bring this fruit back to Israel. And here's what they say. Oh my gosh. It's exactly as God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. This was uh, Joshua's, uh, 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 Joshua and Caleb's report. It's exactly what God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, take a look at this fruit. And the grapes were like grapefruits, right? I mean, just grapes. Take a look at the fruit. It's an abundant land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's amazing. And the other spies came up and they said, yeah, all that's true. But let me tell you what. There are strong cities there with mighty walls, with high towers. There's Jericho. And on the top of Jericho is a bunch of soldiers. And they've got bows and arrows. And they dip them in fire. And they've got sharp swords. And they've got soldiers on the bottom. And they've got breastplates. And they've got all this artillery. And we don't have any weapons whatsoever. We have nothing. We have never fought a battle ever. We're like, what are we going to do? Oh, my gosh. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. (laughs) And they begin to doubt the goodness of God. They saw these strong, fortified wall cities. They saw these impossible odds. And... They did not believe in the goodness of God, that God would give it to them. Look at how Israel responded. I have the verse for you. It's in Numbers chapter 13. Uh, Let me hear you read this. And men, by the way, as the spiritual leaders, I want to hear your baritone voices thundering, okay? Uh, uh, Women too, but men, I I want you to drown out the women. (laughs) That didn't come out right, but you know what I mean. Listen. Let's read together before I get in trouble. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out. Oh, no, we can't do this. No way. We can't make it. Oh, no way. Spears and swords and shields and towers and walls and And let's go on, rest of the verse. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If if only we had died in the land of Egypt. Or if only we had died in this wilderness. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What, what, what happened? They're complaining against who? Moses. And they're complaining against God. And all night long they complain, which means where were they complaining? Inside their tents, inside their kitchen, inside their bedroom. Do you know God knows what goes on inside your tent? And God hears your thoughts inside your tent. And their thoughts were, if only we had died in Egypt. What? What? Let's go on, rest of the verse. 
Why has the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword? That our wives and our children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's select a leader and return to Egypt. Who are they slapping in the face? God. Would it not be better if we were in Egypt? There are people, there are Christians, oh man, remember when we used to go partying? Remember when we used to sleep around? Remember when we used to go bar hopping? Remember when we, hey, wait a minute. Remember when you were waking up the next morning in a pile of barf? Remember when you damaged every meaningful relationship in your life? Remember when you were a total train wreck? And God delivered you from all of that? You want to go back to Egypt, do you? What a slap in the face to God. Uh, Let's go on, rest of the verse. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe in me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I want you to know God takes this very what? Not seriously. God takes this very personally. Personally. Why are they doing this to me? I've loved them. I've cared for them. They don't understand my love. Why do they not believe me? Uh, very personal to God. Now, they perished because of their unbelief in the goodness of God. And here's the question that I would like to ask you Israel did not believe God would give them the victory. And my question is why didn't they believe that God would give them the victory? Why? Any answers? They didn't believe in the goodness of God. Why? Why didn't they believe in the goodness of God? Why? Why? Why would they not believe in the goodness of God? Why wouldn't they? Let me give you, let me give you something to ponder. Uh, why didn't they believe God would give it to them? Because they knew how sinful they were. They knew they didn't deserve God's favor. They knew they didn't deserve God's rich blessing. So when Israel saw the impossible odds of conquering the promised land, all the walls and all the soldiers and all the odds that were against them, they did not have faith in the goodness of God. And here's a question for you. If you were there that day and you saw these walls and these cities and everything else and the soldiers and that you knew you had just cheated on a business deal last week and you knew you had just acted out in anger and you knew you had blown it and you got drunk on Friday night and you knew you had just committed sexual sin and you knew you had just been a greedy pig and you knew that should I go on (laughs) you knew that you had just sinned big time And now you are here at the edge of the promised land. You need God to fight a battle that's way beyond you. It's impossible. You can't do it. Would you go in? Would you go share your faith with someone when you've just blown it? Do you believe God's going to bless you? And here we see something, don't we? Would you go in if you were them? Well, it all depends on how well you know and trust God. You see, when we know God, we trust his loving kindness to us. When we know God, 
We trust his loving kindness for us. We believe that his plans for me are good. And that's difficult for us to believe because we know that we don't deserve it. And when we feel like we don't deserve it, we have a hard time believing that God is going to give it. And this is why knowing the grace of God changes everything. There's a reason that songs are written titled Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a really good person like me. (laughs) No, that saved a what? A wretch. You see, God's grace is amazing. And what does God's grace mean? It means God's riches poured out upon our life when we aren't even remotely worthy or deserving of his abounding riches. And the problem is we don't believe that God is actually that good. And the reason is because we don't know him. And when we actually begin to know him, we are blown away by his amazing grace and it changes everything in our life. Now, I understand firsthand how hard it is to believe in God's amazing grace. How hard it is to believe there's a God who actually loves me that much. And even though I radically sin, he still wants to bless me and use me and transform my life. It's hard for me to believe because I have no comparison of anyone who's ever loved me that way. I've never seen, I've never touched, I have no ontic referent to ever experience any kind of love like that ever. It's like a foreign language. It's like something that I've never known before. How can you know it? Well, only as you begin to know the person of God. And that grace is amazing. I want you to know that unbelief in the goodness of God is unbelief in the real God. Can I say that again? Unbelief in the loving kindness, the abounding mercy, this God that forgives morning by morning, noon by noon, evening by evening, his abounding grace, his unmerited favor, his selfless, generous overwhelming blessings upon my life, even when I don't deserve it, unbelief in that goodness of God is unbelief in the real God. Did Israel believe in God? Absolutely. They were delivered out of Egypt. Did Israel know God? No. And the most freeing, life-changing discovery comes when we finally understand that God's blessings and unmerited favor flow into our life because of his goodness, not because of our goodness. So we can stand on the edge of the promised land Even though I had lustful thoughts for so-and-so, even though I was greedy and angry and everything else, and I can stand on the edge of the promised land and know that what? God still wants to give it to me by his grace and by his mercy. And you say, well, how does that work? It works off of his goodness, not yours. And the moment that you realize that, your life is transformed. Because you realize, oh my gosh, I'm a child of God. And behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon me, that I should be called the child of God. What kind of love that I should be adopted in to the richest, Family in the universe and be considered a son, a daughter. Oh my gosh. 
And when we understand the grace of God, it transforms us. And it makes me not want to sin because I'm like, oh my gosh, I've never been loved like this. You're so good to me. It's your kindness that leads me to want to change my life, leads me to repentance. It's your goodness that transforms me. And you say, well, how? Well, here's how. My brother, Bob, he, he wrongs me. But instead of going, oh my gosh, Bob, I can't believe you wronged me. What is wrong with you? And my sister wrongs me, and I can't believe she did that. She did this and this, and I can't believe it. And every time I see them, man, just like, I know what you did. I know what you did. And instead, it transforms me. And I think, hey, I know what you did. Don't worry about it, man. You know how many times I've messed up? Do you know how much grace I've been given today? Do you know how many sins Jesus forgave me of since last night? Do you know how much mercy he has poured upon me? Don't worry about it. No big deal. And how did all that happen? By the grace of God in your life. When we know God, we trust his what? Loving kindness to us. And what happens? Our life begins to transform. We begin to be conformed into the image of Jesus. We begin to be trans. And instead of going, oh, you wronged me? Yeah, well, no wonder. You know why? Because I get up and pray every day at five o'clock. And then I read my Bible. And if you did better, and then I go serve at a stinking soup kitchen, and I hate those people, but I serve them, man. I serve them. And then I give money to the church, and I can get a new car with that money, but instead I drive this old car, but I give money, and I... And therefore, if you were better like me, then, then maybe you wouldn't have wronged me. <laughs> what a great representative of the church. <laughs> and that's what we do, isn't it? We grunt and we try to be good and we strive to be good and we become bitter inside to everybody else who disappoints us. But when we bathe in the amazing grace of God, when we know who he is, we just trust his loving kindness to us. And we become full of grace, full of mercy, believing that God wants to bless me. And so I step out in faith and I say, Lord, I know I messed up, but today's a new day. I want to serve you today. As I go to work today, help me to share your love with Bill in the cubicle next to me because, Lord, I want to be used by you today. Yeah, but you just messed up last night. I know, but I'm a new creation in Christ this morning. And, Lord, I believe you want to bless me and use me. Wow, this is why grace changes everything. And this is why people write songs about it. Oh, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost and angry and trying to be good. And now I'm found. I was blind, and now I see I am loved by God, and the universe is his, and he gives it to me. I'm a child of God. The Lord is my shepherd. I won't be wanting anything. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Wow. Even in the presence of my enemies, he sets a table before me. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. His rod, his staff, his word, it guides me, it comforts me, it gives me wisdom. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And in the end, when it's over, when this life is over, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yeah, nothing can stop you. When you understand the loving kindness of God. 
It is the most freeing, life-changing discovery when we finally realize that God's blessings flow into my life, not because of my goodness, but because of what? His goodness, his unmerited favor upon us. And the Bible teaches this over and over and over again. Hebrews eleven six on your screens, great memory verse, but read it with me. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. You have to believe that he is this good, loving God. Without faith, it's impossible to believe him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is what? A rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That even though I'm a mess and I don't deserve it, he wants to reward me and he wants to bless me and he wants to pour his favor upon me and he wants to use me and he wants to build my life because of his goodness. And when we know God, we will trust in his loving kindness. When we face challenges, when we face these obstacles in our life, when we face the city of Jericho that we can no way do in our own steam, when we face these battles that are before us, our faith often seems small and weak, does it not? And we face this giant, we go, Lord, how am I going to get through this? I don't know. Lord, how are we? And I want you to know something. I want to reassure you of something. What matters is not the strength of your faith. That might surprise you. What matters is not the strength of your faith, but who our faith is in. And if I know God, well, then I will put my trust in his loving kindness and his provision and his protection because I know how good he is. It's not how strong my faith is. It's how strong my God is. And there's a big difference. Uh, I love N.T. Wright, a great author. He wrote a book, Small Faith, Great God. And here's a quote from that book. Uh, Let me hear you read this. Faith is like a window. Actually, don't read it. Uh, I want to read it to you. (laughs) Faith is like a window. And the point of the window is to allow us to see through it and to let light into the room. I want you to know, in your house, you have windows. And the purpose of that window is not to look at the window. Oh, look at that glass. I'm looking at the glass. No, 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 no. And that's what we do with faith. Oh, I got to have more faith. I got to have more faith. I got to have more. Why are you looking at your faith? That's not, the, that's not why the window is there. The window is there is to let light into the room. To let the power of the glory of the sun into your house to illuminate it. And faith allows us to see our situation and our own weakness in the light of God, who is powerful, holy, and what? Loving, powerful, all-powerful, omnipotent, holy, always right, always just, always true, always faithful, and loving always wanting to pour abounding blessings on you. And the purpose of faith is not to look at faith. The purpose of faith is to let the light of God into our house so that we might see the entire world through the light of God. And that is the purpose of faith. I want you to know there's a verse that always bugs the the snot out of me. Uh, I mean, just, I hated this verse for a long time. Uh, Can you say that? Well, you can if you're real. Like, there's things we have to learn, right? Uh, And I hated this verse. Uh, I hated it because I didn't understand it. Not like I hated it because I didn't believe it. I hated it because I didn't understand it. And uh, it's in Matthew 17, and Jesus said this. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be removed, and it would be removed. And I used to think, I know mustard seeds are one of the smallest seeds. What does that mean? If I have faith as a mustard seed, surely I have faith as a mustard seed. I mean, I've devoted my life to knowing you, God. I mean, do I, what does that mean? And it bugged the heck out of me. 
Faith the size of a mustard seed is faith. What is Jesus trying to tell us? It's not the size of your faith. It's the size of your God. The moment that you have even the smallest glimpse of the power and magnitude and loving, gracious nature of God, then no matter what you face, the moment you know the power and size and loving kindness of God, well, then you can have any mountain in your life and just say, I can get through this, no problem. Jennifer, can I tell your story? Uh, I was speaking with Jennifer this week, a lovely family in the church, uh, and Jennifer found out she has a brain tumor. And uh, I found out on Thursday, and so I call her, and we're talking, and, and as we're talking, uh, I'm just amazed. I mean, here, that's a pretty serious diagnosis, and this woman is just at total peace. And she's inspiring me as I'm calling to encourage her and pray with her. And she's like, you know, uh, hey, whatever happens, I'm really good. I mean, if I'm healed, great. And we're going to pray for her today, and we're going to anoint her with oil, just like the Bible teaches. We're going to have the elders lay hands on her, and we're going to ask for the Lord to heal her. She says, if I'm healed, great. And if I go home to be with the Lord, I long for the day. I can't wait to stand in his presence. And she said, I have people ask me, are you able to sleep? And I sleep great. Because if you have faith as a mustard seed in the amazing person of who this God is, you will be able to say to any mountain, get out of my way. No big deal. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I know who you are. And that you want to fight these battles in my life. How amazing. How amazing. I want you to know, when we have faith, uh, it doesn't mean that when we face hardship, it doesn't mean that we just ignore all the difficulties that are at hand. Faith doesn't mean, oh, I'm just going to pretend those aren't there. That's not faith. Faith doesn't pretend. Faith doesn't ignore uh, faith does not pretend we're not sinners who are really messy and that we deserve God's blessing. No, no, faith looks at the greatness of God. And even though I'm a wretched sinner, Lord, I still believe you want to use me today to speak to your people and to encourage your people and to bless others and that you want to use my life. That is what faith is and that is what faith does. I want you to see something here. Notice what God did here with the children of Israel. God could have easily handed Israel the promised land on a silver platter. But he didn't. God could have wiped out every soldier in Canaan in the promised land. God could have wiped them out with a plague. God could have said, no breath for you. And they all just dropped down and fell over. God could have sent in a plague six months before Israel got to the promised land and they got there and it was vacant and ready, open. God could have turned up the heat in, in Canaan and said, okay, 135 degree weather today and just scorched every little bean there. But he didn't. God brought them to the edge of the promised land and he had them look into it. I want you to think back on Israel's past. God did deliver Egypt, excuse me, God did deliver Israel out of Egypt with a silver platter. He brought plagues on the Egyptians. Ten different plagues. None of the plagues were on the Israelites. All of them were on the Egyptians. There was the plague of boils. Imagine having boils under your skin, blistering and full of pus and water, and, and they're just all over you. The boils are so bad, they're on your feet, you can't even stand. God did that to the Egyptians, not one boil on an Israelite. Imagine a plague of flies 
Flies just coming in like a swarm. So many flies, the ground is completely black. And not one fly on the children of Israel. God brings in a plague of lice. So many lice that there's lice on your skin. There's lice in your pants. Are you getting itchy? There's lice in your house. There's lice in your bed. You pull the sheets and everything moves. And he sends a huge plague of lice to the Egyptians. Not one lice on the Israelites. And it culminates with a plague of losing your firstborn child, your firstborn son. And all you have to do to avoid this plague is believe in the goodness of God. And if you believe, you put the blood over the door of your house, blood of a lamb, a spotless lamb, a picture of Jesus on the cross for us. And the angel of death will pass over you, have no power over your life. You can be an adopted son of God just by believing. But they didn't believe. The, the Egyptians didn't believe. And they all lost a firstborn. And the Bible says for the Jews, not even a dog moved its tongue. That means there wasn't even a dog panting. They were just at total peace that night while Egypt was crying and wailing and mourning. And my point, God delivered them out of Egypt with a silver platter. How many battles did they have to fight? None. God did everything. And he even tells them as he brings them out to the Red Sea and he parts the Red Sea for them. And he says, stand still and just see my power on display. See my mighty salvation. But now he brings them to the promised land and the silver platter is not there. And he says, I actually want you to go in and I want you to see the opposition. And so they go in and they scout it out, right? And they check it all out. Why? Because God is doing something in their lives. He has saved them and now he is trying to build them. And he wants his people to grow. He wants his people to know him, to trust him. And God wants to turn his people into strong, wise, formidable people, men and women who can stand against opposition and be unmovable. Why? Because they're so strong? No, because they know and they trust the living God. That's what God wants to build in Israel, and that's what God wants to build in you and me. Men of substance, women of substance, who do not crumble under hardship, who do not have to run for an antidepressant when they get a flat tire. Maybe that came too close to home, I don't know. What am I saying? Men and women who have deep character. Men and women who have faith in the true and living God. And they know they're sons and daughters of this mighty king and that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and that he's omnipotent and he can give us victory over any battle and he wants to build us into something substantial. I want you to know this is who Jesus wants to make you, church. And you will look amazing when you know who you are in Jesus Christ. You will be full of grace. You will stand in, with incredible strength and wisdom and discernment. And you will be a bright light in a dark world because you know the love of God. You know who your God is. Christian, listen to me. Jesus has a promised land for you that he wants you to inhabit not in heaven, that too, but that's not what I'm talking about. A promised land here on earth that he wants you to inhabit. It is a place of blessing. It is a place of strong, healthy relationships. 
It is a place of selfless marriages where you will be a selfless spouse and you will have an amazing relationship with all those around you. It's a place where you have a strong family, where you will be a leader in your community, where you will have purpose in life, a purpose way greater than making money. What a small purpose. Well, I want a new kitchen. Well, I want a new couch. Well, I want a new pair of shoes. Is that what your purpose in life is? Oh, you, you pathetic little thing. <laughs> God wants to give you an amazing purpose. I want you to know your promised land is a place where you have purpose. Where you use your unique and individual God-given gifts that God gave you to build lives and to serve others and to make a difference in this world all to the glory of God, all to the glory of Jesus. I was thinking about uh, Dennis. Uh, I, I think it's okay to share this. Uh, I was thinking of Dennis Seraldi this week. Uh, his wife, Jennifer, is the one that has the brain tumor. And uh, De- Dennis is a, you know, a member of the church, comes to men's ministry. He also teaches in our Sunday school class. And in our Sunday school class, uh, it's just amazing what goes on there, by the way. Uh, I love going in there and listening to the teachers teach. But uh, Dennis uh, has a kid in his class who's um, a troubled child, uh, uh, not fitting in, uh, disruptive, and uh, Dennis uh, comes and, and, you know, meets this kid, and time goes on, and one day Dennis brings a gift for this kid, just randomly, not on Christmas time, just randomly, brings a gift, and it's a Lego set, and it touches this kid's heart, and this kid who's struggling in life gets touched by the kindness of Dennis as Dennis builds this kid, and now this kid comes to church, and here's what he says, is the nice man here today? Is the nice man here? And he wants to come. Uh, he's the son of a single mom. And he wants to come to church. Uh, Dennis was a builder of a life. And your promised land has incredible purpose because Jesus wants to use you to build and to use the gifts that you have to build others. I think of Chris and Heidi Robinson who are here sitting here first service right there and they just got back yesterday from Cuba and there's this ministry there they're supporting and they went there and they went and fed hundreds of kids and shared the gospel and uh, your promised land is a place where God wants to use you powerfully to build others and the character that God wants us to have that God wants us to build in us it can only come from knowing and trusting in the goodness of God. And that can only come from knowing and trusting his word and his person. And we might think we know God, but here's the, here's the listen to this. We might think we know God. We might think we believe in God. Trials reveal if we really do or not. And so God brings the children of Israel to the edge of the promised land. And God allowed them the trial of seeing an enemy that was bigger and stronger than they were. An enemy that would stand between them and the promised land. And Israel's response to this trial would reveal if they really knew God or not. If they really trusted God or not. And Israel proved that they did not know God. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know what he was like. Now, let me ask you, did Israel believe in God? Oh, yes, they believed in God, but they didn't know God. They didn't trust in his loving kindness towards them. And through Jude, we learn something, don't we? Through this example of this apostasy in the children of Israel, we learn something. They believed in God. They they saw God do things. They, They were... But here as a church, we learn something. That sitting in church doesn't make us a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes us a car. 
Being a Christian is knowing the person of God, knowing his incredible love for us, knowing his goodness towards us, that even when I sin and mess up, he still loves me and wants to bless me. And I get back on track and say, oh, Lord, I want to walk with you. You're so amazing. Thank you for forgiving me my sin. I am in awe of your grace and your mercy. I want to be used by you. I want to serve you today. I want to show your grace and mercy to others. I want to show your truth to others. Lord, here I am. Send me. That is what it means to be a believer. And Israel proved that they did not know God, they did not love God, they did not trust his loving kindness, even though God had miraculously saved them many times, they were apostates. And God had saved them with a mighty hand and countless miracles, but they proved they did not know God. And Jude reminds us, verse 5, the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Why? Because they didn't know who God was. They didn't know his heart. And when we know God, we trust his loving kindness towards us. Israel didn't. Faith in God's goodness. Faith in Jesus' abundant love for us is what makes us a Christian. It's what makes us children of God. And God's love for us has been clearly displayed on the cross of Calvary. That this God became a man, emptied himself of all of his glory, and became a man, why? To meet us where we are, that we might experience who he is, that we might know him. And this God humbled himself and walked among us, and he said things like this, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for a friend. And I want you to know, you are my friend. And I'm laying my life down for you. Why? So that love would transform us and that we would say, man, I want to know God. I want to know who he is. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.